You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Brain, it's gone. That's not all. The entire spinal cord is missing. That's incredible. It's as if some mental vampire were at work. Does it come from another country or another world? This terrifying menace that G2 must destroy before it's too late. The image is fading, sir. There it goes again. Same trouble. How can they stop this invisible force whose only warning is a weird, blood-chilling sound? Only two people still alive can help this agent find the answers. The girl who could be a spy, and the scientist who could be the destroyer of the entire human race. We're facing a new form of life that nobody understands. I believe it feeds on the radiation from your atomic plants, and that it's evil. to stop them. There's only one way to shut down your atomic plant. If I can get through, I can blow up the control room. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Troy Howarth. Thank you for having me back again. This week we are looking at the 1958 film from director Arthur Crabtree, Fiend Without a Face, written by Herbert J. Letter and based on a story by Amelia Reynolds Long. The movie stars Marshall Thompson as Major Cummings, an army officer stationed at that pivotal American-Canadian border where he's investigating the strange goings-on in and around his base. Unfortunately, he's got a case of brains gone wild. We'll be getting into spoilers galore on this 60 year old film. So if you haven't seen it, be sure to pick up the lovely Criterion version of it and come on back when you're ready. We will still be here. Troy, when was the first time you saw Fiend Without a Face and what did you think? Well, it was actually one of those movies that I was aware of long before I actually got around to seeing it. It was one of those uh, films that was almost invariably in all the sort of coffee table type uh, books on horror films that uh, I poured over as a kid in the 80s. And uh, I loved all the pictures of the funky-looking brain monsters attacking people. And, but for whatever reason, it, it didn't seem to show up on TV in my neck of the woods in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So uh, I didn't actually get to see it until, well, I think around uh, 15 years or so ago, whenever the Criterion uh, DVD release came out. Uh, so I never had to suffer through any uh, cut-up TV versions or any bad copies or anything like that. I've been fairly lucky on that score, I guess, but it was one I wanted to see for a long time, but like I said, it just didn't seem to show up on TV. I can't recall it ever showing up on TV uh, that I can remember. How about you, Maitland? I saw Fiend Without a Face when I was a kid. I was probably 11, 12 years old, and it was on television all the time uh, here in New York. 
if I had to guess, my guess would be that it was broadcasting from Secaucus, New Jersey, but it also might have been Channel 11. Those were the two stations that carried all the kind of stuff that I was interested in seeing, particularly late at night. They showed horror movies, 60s thrillers. They showed all kinds of stuff that I think we would now call psychotronic films. And I watched all of them. Now, when I was growing up, we had two televisions in our household. There was one in our parents' bedroom. And then there was one in the bedroom that my two younger sisters shared. And the two of them were quite young, and they had bunk beds. And um, we also had this um, kind of rocking horse, except that it wasn't on rockers. It was on springs in a great big metal frame. Uh, The horse's name was Thunder. And he was right in front of the television set in my sister's room. So if I wanted to watch movies really late at night, I would go into their room. I would watch them on a tiny little black and white TV while sitting on thunder and trying not to move because those those springs were always incredibly squeaky. And they would wake up my sisters, and that would be a terrible thing. So I would just sit there stock still on thunder and watch movies like Scene Without a Face. And I think that was kind of a great way to see that movie. I saw this more in clip form than I actually saw the the movie as a whole. I was one of those people that grew up watching It Came From Hollywood. So the segment that I believe Dan Aykroyd hosted about brains, seeing the brains uh, from this film and not understanding when um, one of the brains attacks our female protagonist in here and Dan Aykroyd saying, hey, don't be a brain tease. I didn't get that joke for a long Long time, but yeah, it, it was one of those like I just saw these clips forever and ever, and then I think I didn't see the full movie until, gosh, I was probably in my thirties. I guess maybe it might have been around the time of that Criterion disc, and then I was so amazed that Criterion was putting this out, this kind of schlocky B horror movie. But then I think this was right around the time that they were putting out like Armageddon and The Rock as well, so nothing was going to surprise me. But this definitely deserves more respect than those films necessarily do. And I was really glad that they did a proper release of Fiend Without a Face because I think it's a great film and really epitomizes a lot of the attitude. Uh, you know, this is there's a lot of talk about atomic energy in this movie. And then it's based on this story by Amelia Reynolds Long. And I, I meant to say loosely based earlier, but then as I was rewatching it again yesterday, I was like, actually, there's there is quite a bit of that story in here. It really does help provide the structure for this film. Even though the short story is what, maybe four pages long. It's not a very long story at all. No, it's, it's, it's actually very short and uh, very economically written. And uh, I have to admit, I'd never read it until um, you sent me a copy of it uh, to help me prepare for this little podcast. And, uh, uh, looking at it, I could see, definitely see why uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was the one that uh, initially brought it to actually Alex Gordon, uh, who worked at AIP at that time, but AIP wasn't interested. And so Alex Gordon took it to his brother, Richard Gordon, and uh, it was Richard who ended up producing the film in England. Uh, I could definitely see why they thought that it had potential, although, you know, it's one of those stories that it's kind of a tease in many respects because Ultimately, the, uh, the the creature, which is referred to in the story as the terror, is never seen. It's never described. We never have any idea of what it looks like, which, you know, depending on your point of view, is, is either better that way or it's worse that way. 
But uh, Richard Gordon quite sensibly realized that uh, when it came to making a sort of uh, B-level horror movie, science fiction movie like this for a 1950s audience, they weren't going to get away with an invisible monster. Although they did do uh, an invisible monster movie later on. I think, if I remember right, it was a Spanish film from the 60s called The Sound of Horror, where I think it was a, an invisible dinosaur. So that's, that's one way of getting around uh, budgetary woes, just to have it be an invisible monster. I think one of the things that's great about being without a face is that although we do eventually see the monster, we don't see it for a very long time. And the fact is that all of those portions of the film in which we don't see it are extremely effective. You know, the fact that you see the, the straw, the hay moving as it moves through it, the bushes, you hear that noise that indicates that the creature is there. You see people reach up and grab their throats and realize that something has taken hold of them that you can't see are all remarkably effective. And then what's great about the movie is you eventually do get to see it. So it really gets to have it both ways. It gets to not show you too much, but it shows you something in the end. And what it shows you is great. I love those creatures. I think they're fantastic. Oh, they absolutely are. And it, it is almost... I wouldn't go so far as to say it's like a Val Luton movie for the first hour or so. It's it's not quite on that level, but it, it does succeed in conveying something that uh, there's something horrible out there that is uh, a legitimate menace and something that somehow can't be visualized because it's so awful. And then when it shows up at the end as these sort of flying brains with uh, antennae and, uh, and, and uh, sort of uh, spinal cord tails, it, Really, it could have been completely ludicrous. It could have been completely laughable, but I don't think it is because the effects, although obviously they're low tech by today's standards, they were very well done, uh, especially when we consider the fact this is a, a relatively inexpensive film. Uh, the, as a matter of fact, special effects drew the budget over. Um, it was originally intended to be a much cheaper film than it was, but because the effects ended up being a little bit on the elaborate side, it ended up driving the budget up a little bit, but I'd say it was money well spent because uh, I can't think of a more outrageously strange concept for a monster than that. And yet it does work surprisingly well. And it ultimately, as I'm sure we'll get to, it builds to a climax that is far and away the goriest of any horror or science fiction film of that period. And really even going into the 1960s, sort of pre-Herschel Gordon Lewis, I mean, it's, it's an exceptionally gruesome movie. One of the things that I love about the creature effects in this film is that even though, on the one hand, yes, they're, they're pretty outrageous, they're brains, and they have little antennas, but on the other hand, biologically, they actually make considerable sense. You know, once you grant that those spinal cords work the way inchworms' bodies do, the way those brains move is actually very organic. You see the spine kind of curl up, and then they push themselves forward, and they have those little nerves running off either side of the spinal cords that they pull themselves along with. I look at them and I think, well, you know, they look a great deal like caterpillars, except with some little extra parts. And they don't look any stranger to me in a very real way than a lot of insects that I see in nature documentaries blown up, blown up. 500 times so that they indeed look like monsters themselves. There is something biologically coherent about them that you don't always see in monster movies of that period. Sometimes you just see big, crazy monster things 
that you look at and you think, well, that, that's a fun monster effect, but nothing like that could ever actually exist. Whereas these crawling brains have a certain internal biological consistency that makes them extremely creepy. And of course, I probably shouldn't say creepy because of course they are the creeping brains, but they're disturbing in a way, partly because they're so alien and partly because they kind of look like things that exist in, in the real world. Yeah, and those eye stalks that are constantly almost like feeling around, almost like a snake's tongue or something are really very um, unsettling, let's say. But yeah, I, I agree as far as like not showing them and showing the straw moving, showing things moving across the floor to see like um, like this almost like a slime trail that they leave. I mean, it, it's really nice. And then, yeah, that squelching sound is good. And then just not knowing if they're around they could be right behind you right now but you, you you would know um and that's a very effective thing as far as how this plays out and then also you don't seem to know as far as like when they're attacking or who they're attacking there isn't a real clear pattern so it's not like as we go through this we're like oh it's only attacking the people who do x y and z they just seem to be very random in who they attack and go after anybody and it's not somebody who's standing in their way it all has to do finally we kind of figure out as far as uh, it has to do with this experiment that's happening at the army base that ties back into atomic energy and when they pump up the atomic energy in order to um, have this i guess it's like a super radar kind of thing it seems like they can see far very far with these planes that they're sending up i'm not exactly sure of all the details as far as how this radar is supposed to work but it feels like when they pump up the atomic energy to help that experiment, that's when the brains, the fiends, really start to come out and they feed off of that energy. So they're tying in atomic age paranoia with also this kind of um, embodiment of this professor's id going around, but it doesn't seem like it's necessarily tied together as far as like it isn't people that make the professor mad once these things manifest they are i don't want to say they have a mind of their own because that's all they are but they have their own ambitions they don't seem to have any sort of end plan other than making themselves present and then taking out all the people that are are around basically they want to kill everyone yeah, I'm, I agree with that. I think you hit on a couple of interesting points. One of them being that there is no clear progression that you can predict who's going to get it in this movie. Very often in these films, there's some kind of a vendetta in place or, a, you know, kind of a, a settling of accounts that's being done so that we get a sense of who's going to get it next or something along those lines. And that doesn't happen here because it is very random. It is just, uh, you know, basically whoever is unlucky enough to be in the, uh, the line of path of the monsters at, at a given moment. The other thing is too, that of course, uh, Herbert leader who wrote the script and originally had hoped to direct the film uh, as well, although that didn't work out for him. He of course brought in all of that sort of 1950s paranoia about outsider figures, which was very prevalent at the time with the, uh, the Red Scare, you know, sort of paranoia about foreigners and things like that, <clears throat> as well as all the uh, military aspect and the, uh, the this overwhelming sort of paranoia about the 
atomic bomb and nuclear radiation and things like that. There's absolutely nothing like that in the short story at all, which of course dates from 1930. So that was well before all of that, but it was an interesting way of sort of bringing it up to date for a 1950s audience. I completely agree. And again, much of what you said just ties back to the fact that I think that they work as biological organisms precisely because they're not the direct embodiment of somebody did. They're not out to get revenge on the people who did somebody wrong. They are not out to destroy people who are destroying the environment. They're, they're just creatures and they're behaving the way creatures do. And it, it's sometimes hard for people to figure out why other beings do what they do because they're not people. You can't judge their motives by the motives of human beings. They're, they're just doing what they do, with the issue here being, of course, that nobody knows what they are. It's not as though there were a, a, a starving tiger loose in, uh, in the countryside. You, you can kind of predict what a starving tiger would do because you can go and read a book. You can consult some biologists and they can tell you how a starving tiger would behave. These things are a total mystery because they're behaving according to a logic that is entirely their own, and because nobody knows what they are, can't really figure it out. Right. It's instinctive, and it's also, you know, it's that notion you can't really, you can't really reason with a giant brain, uh, you know, a floating brain. So it's, uh, in, in and of itself, that makes it a slightly more, as you say, slightly more alarming concept and slightly more disturbing than the average kind of film monster of this period, which, again, follows a more kind of predictable path. I think that's what gives this movie a little bit more of an edge compared to some of the other ones is it is not as inherently predictable. You know, the film certainly could have been more uh, elaborate and, uh, and include a little more mayhem if there had been the opportunity to do that. But as I said, they stretched uh, their resources pretty thin as it was. Um, when you consider the fact that this short story is... Uh, packed with, I think, about half a dozen murders within the first couple of paragraphs. Uh, the movie itself takes a while to get going, but of course it needs to do that. It needs to sort of establish the characters and the background and everything. But once once the horror aspect really starts to take over and the monsters start striking, it's that lack of predictability that is very effective because somehow that's less safe and cozy, you know, because you, you can't necessarily predict where it's going to go because it's not following that kind of typical trajectory. One nice thing that adds to the paranoia of the situation as well is the whole idea of the, a U.S. Army base that's in Canada. It's it's in, I believe, Winthrop, Manitoba, which is a fictional town, if, if I've done my research right. So you have the whole idea of Americans versus Canadians, but then even more than that, the Army versus the farmers. And so we have a lot of... Uh, conflict at the beginning as far as your planes are disturbing our cows. We are simple farmers, we're dairy farmers, and you're disturbing the cows. And so there's this whole thing about one guy who is keeping a journal. And so it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, he he was spying on the base. And it's like, well, actually, no, he was keeping track of when the flights were going overhead because he was worried about his cow and when the cows aren't giving milk and all this kind of stuff. And so there's that going on. So there's this idea of, you know, the farmers not trusting the army guys, the Canadians not trusting the Americans. And then they even kind of throws a little bit of a red herring as far as the guy, I think his name is Howard Gibbons, who 
comes in and he and our main character, the major, end up getting into a fist fight. And then the next time we see Howard, he is leading a, a posse to go out and try to, you know, find what's killing these farmers. And then he comes back into the story as this raving lunatic who is like a mindless zombie at that point. So it kind of throws us a little bit of a red herring as far as like, well, maybe it has something to do with the major since there was this physical altercation. Right. And I think that plot development with the uh, the character showing back up as a sort of gibbering idiot is a um, connection into the short story, which uh, after the initial mayhem gets underway and the initial series of killings have taken place, a uh, police detective comes in to do an investigation and uh, he disappears. And then a later uh, later on in the story, he shows back up and he's in a similar state. So I, I, again, it kind of goes back to the idea that they were updating this story in a way to reflect, as films do in general, you know, the period in which it was made and the concerns and what was sort of in the uh, in the air at the time, so to speak. But they're still sort of touching on a lot of the basic plot points. It's just sort of mixed together in a slightly different way. I, I do think that although it takes it in rather different directions and it includes elements that certainly weren't in the story, I do think it manages to capture the essence of the story fairly well. I also like the fact that it manages, even while using tropes that are familiar to us from other films and from other science, other science fiction stories, manages not to play into certain kinds of stereotypes. For example, you don't have a situation where the local folks are all yahoos and they hate all of this city people coming in here, and they don't trust these scientists, and they don't trust these army guys. There is a certain amount of conflict between the military base and the local people, but it really doesn't play heavily into that kind of stereotype. And in fact, the local people here are pretty on top of things. They're very aware of what's going on around them, and they're aware that Something's happening, and that maybe the first thing they need to do is they need to examine it. They need to document it. They need to keep an eye on exactly what's happening and write it down so that it can be figured out. It doesn't have that peasant versus the fancy family up on the hill kind of dynamic. It suggests that nobody in this movie is hugely unreasonable. Nobody here is the mad scientist, even though there's definitely some weird science going on. It just suggests that this is this is a situation in which a number of social things have come together, and there is definitely something happening that is clearly related to this army base, something somebody's doing there. But nobody's the malicious person, nobody's the crazy person, nobody's the dumb yokel. Everybody's fairly reasonable, and given the information that each of them have at various times, they're really trying to find a solution to what's going on. And that really does make it different from a lot of particularly low-budget movies of that time that are very clear about who's the crazy person, who's the villain, who's the mad scientist doing crazy science things with no regard for other people around them. It's surprisingly balanced for a movie about crawling brain creatures. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. There, there isn't a clear-cut heavy in the movie. Uh, there's no... I mean, I, I would say that the film definitely suffers from the same sort of uh, sketchy characterizations that you get in most of these films. There's not a lot of depth to anybody, but everybody's pretty agreeable uh, up to a certain extent. Even the uh, 
Professor Walcott, I think his name is, uh, would have been easy to have depicted him as a sort of embittered, nasty old guy, but he's really not. Uh, nobody is depicted unfavorably. And as you say, too, they, they're not just sort of backwards rubes uh, running around uh, acting like stereotypes, uh, you know, uh, decrying science and decrying progress. It's all sort of based in a, uh, a more realistic context. Now, I don't know how much of that was entirely deliberate and how much of that is a happy accident. I'm not entirely sure, but as you say, it does give the movie a slightly different edge compared to most of the other sort of science gone wrong movies of the period. I was really glad at how much authority our female character, Barbara Grizel, who's played by Kim Parker, how much she has in this film. She's not just this screaming, helpless female. She actually seems to have things to do. She's actually the one who is the voice of reason for a while. I mean, she's exploited, sure. Like, when he comes in and she's there standing in a towel, we get to ogle her for quite a while, and it even ends up uh, as the poster image is her standing there in this towel. But at the same time, like I said, she's not just... Even though she's the the love interest she's not just there to be that person for you know our main male character to come in and say i'm going to do this and then leave she actually has a little bit of of gravitas in this which i really appreciate that she's there being part of this and she's there at the end being attacked just like the male characters are being attacked yeah i agree and i like um you mentioned about the uh the exploitation angle, that was something that Richard Gordon, uh, the producer, was very uncomfortable with. He later said that MGM kind of uh, pressured him into uh, playing up that aspect, uh, especially in the posters. Uh, it's a very prominent image in the posters. I mean, of course, sex sells. It always does. But it's sort of typical of the period that there is that slight sort of object, uh, objectification of her. Um, you know, the character isn't, again, not terribly depthy. We don't really get much about her. We don't really know a lot about her, but she does pitch in with everybody else at the end of the film, and she's not reduced to a kind of catatonic state and, uh, you know, sort of shrieking and hiding in the background. You know, the whole finale of the film with them holed up in, in that house, you know, obviously, George Romero never mentioned the film as far as I know. I, I don't know if it was something that he was familiar with, although he was indeed a fan of these types of films, so it's quite possible he saw it. It's not a huge stretch to say that this film could have been a little bit of an influence on Night of the Living Dead, uh, that notion of the people sort of holding themselves up in the house while there's this uh, sort of menace uh, erupting outside and trying to break in. So compare this character of Barbara to the character of Barbara. <laughs> in fact, I just made that connection in uh, night of the living dead, who is indeed reduced to a sort of catatonic state for much of the film. And uh, for as progressive as Romero was, and for as uh, progressive as that film was in many respects, uh, he would say later on that he kind of regretted that a little bit, that he made her such a sort of ready-made victim. And he wouldn't make that mistake later on in his other films, his uh, female uh, protagonists in the later films are much more complex and much more strong and assertive. But, you know, here we have this film from, uh, you know, a decade before, released in 58. Uh, I think depicting its female character as a slightly more sort of strong and resourceful character than he managed to do 10 years later on. What's also wonderful is to go back to what you said at the very beginning, is that generally speaking, 
you know, people talk about the low budget film producers and film companies as being the upholders of these stereotypes. But in this case, MGM, which was one of the Tiffany companies, was actually the one that was a little more inclined to go the exploitation route with this film and to, for example, put together promotional materials that included Barbara in the towel. Whereas it was Richard Gordon, the guy who made inexpensive, low budget, aimed for teenage and exploitation movie fans, actually managed to make a movie in which a lot of those stereotypes were overturned, in which the female character was indeed quite empowered, quite intelligent, uh, not the person who knuckled at the first sign of, of any kind of danger, and didn't spend the entire movie running around screaming and wearing hot pants or a towel. She's very much a part of the team of people who are looking for a solution to this problem. Troy, you mentioned um, Ned the Living Dead. I was getting a real uh, Attack of the Killer Shrews vibe from this film right towards the end. I don't know. Um, I guess my mind was more in the gutter than <laughs> than yours was with this one, um, especially the way that they're shooting at those brains and stuff and just kind of like throwing the bullets at them. Um, but yeah, I was uh, picturing that. And then also, you know, the shrews were, they had their own raison d'etre, but it was kind of like along the same line as the brains. They just wanted to basically kill everybody. Well, it also ties into a, a later film that Richard Gordon had a hand in producing, a Terrence Fisher science fiction film from 1965 with Peter Cushing called Island of Terror. and has a similar kind of uh, finale with all the characters gathered together in the town hall and uh, trying to defend themselves against these uh, silicates, uh, which are attacking. Uh, they were another kind of slightly outrageous creature that kind of looked like like bizarre-looking, funky-looking turtles uh, with, with some sort of long, elongated necks. And they seem to secrete uh, chicken soup whenever they're uh, hurt or cut in half or whatever <laughs> happens. But uh, there's a, you know, these are tropes that once they are uh, exploited and they're shown to have some kind of uh, appeal, they just keep reusing them again and again. But it did definitely also remind me of that film. Uh, which, you know, again, uh, from the same producer. So I'm sure that was definitely on his mind when he made that particular film. I remember when I first saw this movie, I, I was quite young, and I was um, still keeping a set of index cards. I would make a, a card for each of these movies. And I remember quite clearly writing on my card for this film that when people shot the brains, they dissolved into puddles of applesauce. <laughs> And that did come back to me as I looked at them here, because, yeah, they did kind of dissolve into puddles of applesauce with peel in to make them kind of red, even though, of course, the film's in black and white, so they're not red. But it's still, I think, quite a gory and striking effect. It's way nastier than you would often see in films of this kind. It, again, it's very organic. It kind of looks like what you think it would look like if you took a uh, a weapon and fired at a relatively small thing that probably doesn't have a lot of internal skeleton. There's just a lot of mush in there. And when you put a bullet in them, well, you get a lot of mush. Yeah, I I, um, I definitely think as far as the gore is concerned, this was way ahead of what was typically being done at the time. And of course, it landed into trouble with the British Board of Film Censors, they insisted on some cuts, not just to what you see, but also to what you hear, those sound effects, which are kind of a sort of slurpy straw effect, um, but are very, very good. 
and it, it conveys the notion of something the notion of something really nasty that was uh, downplayed in the British print and even the American version I believe was cut slightly for its theatrical release although it was uh, restored for the Criterion DVD so it was definitely ahead of the curve as far as that goes really as far as graphic gore in the 1950s go uh, the only movie that I can think of that had some images that were kind of similarly gruesome was a uh, Ricardo Freda, Mario Bava film from 59 called Kautiki, The Immortal Monster, which has some rather gruesome uh, shots of sort of flesh being stripped away from the bone. But you didn't get a lot of that in the 50s and into the early 60s, really until you started to see things like the Herschel Gordon Lewis films, which... I, you know, were, were done in such a way they were so uh, over the top and uh, they couldn't really take them too seriously. But I think the the gore effects in this film and the abundance of uh, blood splatter effects that you get at the end of the film were really very effective for the time. It looks very good in black and white, by the way. I think that was the right choice for this particular film. As I was looking at it, I was thinking of a conversation that I had many years ago with a friend of mine a friend who's significantly older than we are and whose wife is very much not a fan of this sort of movie, which is why he and I often wound up talking about them. And uh, his term for this kind of effect was the giblet. And Mm -hmm. his wife, Jamie, really hated the giblet, (laughs) whereas he was much more sanguine, if you will, about it. But yeah, the term the giblets kept on coming back to me as the, the final massacre of the creeping brains played itself out. I was really happy with the flashback scene, like, because we kind of go from almost like a parlor scene where, okay, Professor Walgate, you're going to tell us now, you know, you know, you're the one who did this. We found the pipe in the mayor's coffin. And so we now know that it was you and you're going to be the one that we pin all this thing on. And then he does the, well, it started on a dark and stormy night kind of a thing. And we go into this flashback to his whole progression of, how he wanted to control thoughts and he wanted to project his thoughts and he's concentrating so hard in order to, you know, change a, a page and a book and that it exhausts him so much that he ends up passing out. And just the way that we progress with that, it's a really nice, tight flashback scene. And then it, it you know, I'm throwing out all these movies that it reminds me of. It almost reminded me a little bit of Frankenstein because it's when electricity, when lightning strikes the house, there's enough power there for him to really manifest and be able to move these pages. And so that then ties into the atomic energy as far as if he can get this power source and he can get enough power going, then he can do more of these things. He can actually manage to make things move with his mind, move a glass over and all these, these little things things and then finally is able to manifest a presence that he can feel inside of the room and then we eventually get back into our main story where now we have the brains and then that shows up again when we're at the power plant and the brains one of the brains basically turns up the power all the way so that you know they become physical beings now like they have enough power this they're going to overload the uh the the power plant the the nuclear energy plant so now they can become physical beings um i have to say it was a really bad idea though for our main character to go in and basically cause a nuclear meltdown at the power plant i kept having visions of fukushima or three mile island but 
I guess if you're going to have to do something, he's, he did it. I also like that connection back to Frankenstein and even before that, you know, the earliest myths about lightning striking and, and bringing first fire and then power to the human race. And the idea that, you know, it really did seem like a magical thing because it was something that people couldn't create. It came from someplace else, and then you had to harness it. And once you'd harnessed it, it, you could turn it to your own ends. But it was something that even when there was a science to explain what it was, it still felt mystical. It felt like something from another world. And in a way, that seemed almost Lovecraftian to me. And that's something that I thought about a couple of times while I was watching this film, even though you can't connect it to any particular Lovecraft story because... Lovecraft had a slightly different bent to his writing, but it all seems to be of that very 1930s kind of sensibility, which had its roots in the beginning of the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, all all mad scientist movies effectively go back to, you know, all roads lead to Frankenstein, I guess, on that level. But, uh, you know, as in Frankenstein, and of course, we tend to forget sometimes what the story itself was all about and what the intention of the story was versus what it became in the various different film adaptations. But uh, as in the original story, this uh, Professor Walcott, it, you know, as we were discussing before, is not a mad scientist in the traditional sense of the term. He's not out there trying to do something uh, on a vindictive level. He's not trying to create a monster. He's trying to do something that is, uh, you know hopefully going to have some beneficial uh, kind of uh, an effect. And that's, you know, that is typical in a lot of these films. I mentioned Island of Terror before the silicate monsters in that movie were created out of a uh, cancer experiment that had gone wrong in an attempt to cure cancer. So it's that notion of sort of going for something that could be beneficial for humanity, but then it uh, backfires and unleashes some unimaginable horror. I suppose, in a way, it's a slightly conservative conceit in the sense of uh, it going back to that notion of don't meddle in things that you're not meant to meddle with, which is at the heart of a lot of these stories. But again, this is not a uh, character that sets out to create these uh, kind of uh, brain-sucking monsters. Uh, he's uh, it, This is actually a uh, uh, not a, an unsympathetic character at all. He's... Uh, He's not going for, uh, you know, something really nasty and horrific deliberately. It's just a kind of unintended consequence of his actions. Well, also very specifically, he's not looking to do something for personal profit. He's not looking to make himself rich or to make himself powerful. He really is somebody whose interest in science is a very pure interest in advancing the store of human knowledge and therefore advancing the ways in which people can use science to benefit their lives and the lives of others. So there, that's a very sympathetic view of science that you often don't see particularly in movies of, of the 50s, where there are a lot of mad doctors who are out for themselves. They're looking to either save a loved one, no matter what cost to others, or to make themselves powerful to make themselves politically influential, to make themselves rich. That's not at all what's going on in this movie. And there's a a very pure view of science here in which really it's about trying 
to make the world a better place for people in general, not for particular people. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out the way it was intended to. But there's no malice and no greed involved in it. It's just things didn't work out. Right. It's it's very different in a sense from what uh, right around the same time that was happening with Hammer Films with The Curse of Frankenstein, which uh, had been shot at the end of 1956 into the early part of 1957 and had come out in May of 57 and was a huge box office success, really a game changer. But in that film, introducing the character of Baron Frankenstein, you get uh, a character who changes dramatically over a series of films. Not that it was originally intended to be a series of films, but it became one. And at times you have a character who has noble aims and ambitions. And at other times, as in, I think, Curse of Frankenstein, you get a sense of somebody who is just overly sort of rich and pampered who is uh, looking to do something not for the good of humanity, but basically to sort of make his mark and uh, really uh, establish himself as a, a powerful and influential and, and renowned figure. Uh, he, you don't get a strong sense of something really sympathetic, at least in the first film out of the way that the Baron, the Baron is presented in that particular film, whereas you do in some of the later films, perhaps, but... By contrast, a movie like Fiend Without a Face, although on the face of it, you know, one would think that it would play more into that kind of, you know, deliberate mad science or that kind of uh, uh, almost sort of schlockier kind of mentality about, uh, you know, approaching this sort of material. It is interesting on that level, it, again, whether intended or not, that it does have that much more sort of balanced and... Uh, uh, rational kind of approach, you know, as rational as can be for a film, again, with, with uh, you know, brain monsters. Both the book and the movie, and similarly insofar as the professor ends up being a sacrifice, like he knows what he has to do at the end of the short story and basically sacrifices himself or tries to, you know, kill this creature by luring it into this room and shutting the, the door and, you know, like, don't come in here anymore kind of thing and tries to, to kill his own creation. In this one, there isn't that moment necessarily, but there is a, you go out the back door, I'll go out the front door and distract them. And ultimately, like all of these creatures jump on him and kill him. So he's made that sacrifice. It's in a, in a different way, but it's still a sacrifice and, and enables Jeff, Major Jeff to go and, you know, set up this whole thing and uh, destroy them through melting down this power plant. So it is a nice parallel between those stories. I think there's, we, we tend to think like, Oh, a four page short story can't necessarily bring us all of the nuances of this film, but really there are so many parallels. It's really a lot more similar than it is different. Even to the point of, you know, I mentioned the mayor earlier and this whole idea of the mayor and his coffin and this uh, tomb there's, it's done in a slightly different way, but that's another parallel scene or the gibbering idiot, the idiot that you mentioned earlier, Troy, that's also there though again done in a slightly different way. And I think it makes sense to keep us with one protagonist versus the two investigators that come to town in the short story, one a paranormal investigator, one a policeman. And in this, it's nice, too, that we move from policemen, because 
I'll admit, policemen in most of these movies just walk around with the big kill me sign on their back, whereas making this person an army guy tends to elevate him a little bit more from, again, local yokel to national figure of authority. So it's nice that there's that difference because I think army guys tend to live a little bit longer, especially guys with like the fancy hats. They tend to last a little bit longer in these movies and he manages to make it all the way to the end of the film. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, sometimes the, uh, the uh, duration of screen time that the characters live uh, sort of uh, coincides with the amount of strikes that he has or the amount of stars that he has on his uniform. So we have a major here, so he's in, he's in good stead. But as you, yeah, as you were saying, it's, uh, it, it does manage to really kind of evoke all of the major points, all the major points of interest of the short story. It's not a literal transcription, nor do I think it needs to be. I've, I've never really understood people who get really hung up on the idea of fidelity to the text unless you have a situation like, uh, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, for example, where you have, you know, the author's name in the title and you have the filmmaker going out and saying, this is the book and it's not, uh, that's, uh, something that's obviously annoying when that happens because it's been missold or it's been misrepresented. Um, really ultimately the story is the story. The film is the film. And, uh, if it offers a fresh sort of interpretation of it, so much the better, but it does manage to evoke most of the major plot points of the story. You know, in the story, it's the idea of the uh, the violet lights that uh, have the ability to destroy the monsters. In uh, the film, they change that to nuclear power. I mean, that, of course, that makes perfect sense. It's the 1950s. Why wouldn't you do that? So it manages to hit on all of those things. And I do think that, as you said, changing it and sort of telescoping it a little bit, making it one character as opposed to two, you know, it's a short story. It's a very short story. And I would say, arguably, it's a little overly ambitious in terms of the amount of characters it crams in. So I think the Herbert leader in writing the script was intelligent uh, to get rid of that whole psychic investigator angle and just put it onto one major character, which, of course, would also be good in terms of attracting some kind of a, uh, a leading man figure, which at this time in British films, uh, it was typical to try and get an American leading man. That changed with The Curse of Frankenstein, where they uh, started embracing the idea of making British films with British actors and not bringing in Forrest Tucker or uh, Zachary Scott or Dana Andrews or whomever to carry a movie uh, with a primarily British cast. Uh, But at this time, they still were kind of going with this idea that American audiences couldn't really accept the idea of a British cast or a British setting, so let's put it into Canada uh, along the uh, American-Canadian border because that's where all the action's at. Let's have an American leading man, even if he isn't the most exciting leading man in the world. He's uh, he's a good, solid American guy, so we'll put him in there and audiences will accept it. And they did, so you know maybe they were right. Good, solid American guy definitely does describe Marshall Thompson. You know, I think that most people now really don't have any image of Marshall Thompson. I do because as a kid, Dakari was one of my absolute favorite television shows. So mm-hmm. Marshall Thompson ranked pretty high in, in my personal pantheon of actors who I saw on television. But he's fairly bland when you come right down to it. I, I don't think that most people our age could pick him out of a lineup. 
Am I wrong? No, I agree. I mean, he had done uh, it, the terror from beyond space, which of course was a big uh, influence on alien and Richard Gordon really liked him. He ended up using him again for another uh, film that he produced not long after this called the first man into space. So, you know, Richard Gordon was very fond of him and, uh, I guess he was regarded as, as a name. Uh, you know, what, I don't think he was ever what you would call a real sort of top tier major star presence. But, you know, for a movie like this, he, he was what it needed in the sense that you need that sort of square jawed, down to earth, just very practical guy that, uh, will help you kind of accept the more outlandish concepts of the movie, perhaps. Not the greatest actor in the world. He's not the most charismatic, but he's not bad in the film. It's, you know, the, the hero roles in movies like this, let's be honest, usually they're the bad parts. They're kind of boring to play. They're not the more, they're not the roles that the actors really like to play. The interesting parts are like the uh, the professor uh, or some of the smaller character roles. That's where the meat's at. It's not really so much the uh, Johnny Hero from the uh, the U.S. Uh, you know Army uh, character. He's not the guy that you're really going to uh, find the most interesting character quirks with. So this is set in uh, this... You know, Winthrop, Manitoba, and the accents that these characters are given, the non-American playing actors, they're not necessarily Canadian accents either. And at first I was like kind of ch- chafing under that. I was just like, oh, well, that's not really, you know, very accurate. And then I was thinking, well, actually, the people in Manitoba, there is a really strong Scandinavian influence. So if these guys spoke with more of a Scandinavian accent, which I think some of them do, it actually is kind of accurate, which was kind of a weird thing because they didn't need to be accurate whatsoever. There are some moments where I can tell that these people are obviously being dubbed over with different accents. I think they had real, you know, British, the, most of the, the cast was British. And I think some of them could pull off an accent and some of them, they just overdubbed them. So there were a couple scenes, I think with like the locals who were, you know, getting ready to go out and form a posse. And thank goodness that that guy keeps like a dozen guns in the back of his, his car. But, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, here you go. And like, yeah, let's go out and get them. And there was a, a couple lines where I was just like, wow, they really dubbed that over. But for the most part, I'd have to say, Either they're speaking with good voices or they did some really good ADR work and covered up some of these uh, accents. So, you know, again, they didn't have to make this movie as good as it is. It looks really good. The soundtrack I thought was really effective as well. And yeah, to your point from earlier, the creature effects, they look pretty darn nice. They really do. And I think that it's obvious that that's where you know, the lion's share of the budget went to. I mean, as it would, because that's uh, that's what you're looking to really sell to the public. And uh, I think we have all seen uh, horror films and science fiction films of this vintage that are undone by bad monster effects. There was a really, in many respects, very good British uh, science fiction horror film from uh, 58, also in the same year with uh, Forrest Tucker called The Crawling Eye. It was originally called The Trollenberg Terror. It was an adaptation of a British TV serial. And it's a really good, moody, creepy movie for most of the running time. And then you get to the end and you see the eye monster. <laughs> it's just preposterous. I mean, it's kind of neat in a way, but at the same time, it's, it looks really bad. And there's some really bad miniature effects and things like that. Things like that can really take you out of the experience, whereas I do think the effects here, even though, you know, let's state the obvious, they are obviously special effects, we're well 
aware of the fact that we're watching some stop motion animation that's being done, but it's done really well. And frankly, I prefer that in some respects to the kind of effects that we see now that are kind of, they're so perfect and they're so, uh, they're so slick. They lack a personality. And, and I think that's, uh, that's one of the problems that happens with, uh, the, the emphasis on technology nowadays in movies that, you know, so much can be done with the flick of a switch on a computer, but it frequently lacks that kind of handcrafted quality that was kind of endearing, you know, think back to the Ray Harryhausen movies and things like that, where, you know, yeah, you were aware of the fact that you were seeing something unreal, but that was, that was what was fun about it. That was what was interesting. As a matter of fact, Richard Gordon said, uh, years later that he would have liked to have done a remake of Fiend Without a Face in color with a higher budget. But uh, by the time that the digital effects started to come in, he thought, oh, that would just take all the fun out of it. And I, I think he was absolutely right in that. Well, I think you're completely right. And you've, you've brought me into a territory that I find myself wandering into all the time because I find that digital effects are profoundly alienating to me, even though on a technical level, they're extremely good. And this is something I, I, I'm sure I've talked about, Mike, with you many times before, but I find that there is an absence of physicality to them that is as completely destructive of the fictional world as any obvious marionette effect is. My eye can completely see when something's not there, when it's an entirely generated effect. And I would quite honestly, rather have perhaps a slightly less perfect on the surface physical effect to the more polished digital effect because those physical effects have a physical presence on the screen. There, there really is a there, there. And that for me works a lot better as a moviegoer than seeing something that essentially for me is a cartoon. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think all you need to do is compare the... 1933 King Kong with the Peter Jackson King Kong. I mean, apart from the fact that the Peter Jackson film is grotesquely overproduced and overinflated, uh, just when it comes to Kong himself, uh, the effects in the Jackson film, of course, are state of the art. They're beautifully done. They're, they're brilliant for what they are, but they just don't have that personality that you get from a, uh, a couple of people sitting in a room, filming one frame at a time, moving a puppet one frame at a time. It, somehow there's just something magical about that. I think that's what it is for me is as much as anything. It's that sense of magic is with a lot of the digital effects. And I think that, you know, with being without a face, yeah, you could do a state of the art, big budget remake of this film and, and bring in, you know, a big, uh, you know, a level movie star like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt to play our major hero character. And, uh, you know, it, it could, potentially go over well for a certain population of the audience, but I, I don't think that a really slick kind of production like that would have the same kind of personality and the same kind of magic that comes through. You know, to me, this is a movie that it has a lot of interesting things about it. It's a very uneven film. Uh, some of the acting is good. Some of it is not. Some of the dialogue is, is hopelessly, you know, uh, ludicrous. Some of it is fine. Um, some of the directing is inspired, some of it is not, but it's the good elements that stand out. And uh, when we think about that last stretch of the film, the last 15 minutes or so in that house uh, uh, under attack by the monsters, that to me is, is really magical. And I would sooner have 
that type of uh, a sequence with those types of effects than, uh, you know, an overinflated and overly slick sort of variation that could be done with the modern technology. That, that's just me personally. I saw the strangest critique of this movie where somebody was angry that, and I can't remember if it was on the the menus or on the actual cover, but they were angry that they, that Criterion was using the brain image and it was just like, no, no, you're showing us the creature and how dare you show us the creature so soon and we're just waiting for it the whole movie. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of the point. You're waiting for it the whole movie and you've seen it. I mean, all the way back to 1958, it was on the poster. You know, get over yourself. <laughs> it was just such a weird critique for a movie. Oh, no, I was just going to say 60 years is a long time to, you know, getting into avoiding spoilers. Well, yeah, I feel the same way. I really feel like with a 60-year-old film, I'm not going to entertain any serious complaint that this is a spoiler because it's 60 years old. Do we not all read books? Do we not all go to websites? Do we not, if we care at all about a movie like this, seek out the kind of background material that will show us that, yeah, oh, right, that's the movie with those brains, with the little wiggly antenna and the inch, the, the inchworm spinal cords and those fabulous little scraggly legs. That's not really the point of this film, and that, I guess, is my bigger point. The point of this film is not, oh, my God, but when, when I want to be surprised when the monster comes out, it's, oh, my God, this movie is so remarkably good in its creation of atmosphere in the fact that it, it, it has almost a Quatermass experiment, experiment tone to it for much of the film. And that's a pretty high bar to set. And it does not stand or fall on, was I shocked when I first saw the brain monsters? It's the sum total of everything about it, about the performances, about the setting, about the combination of the science fiction horror elements in the story. And, yes, about those great creatures, but they all work together. You don't ruin that movie by seeing a picture somewhere of one of the brain creatures and say, oh, well, I don't need to see that. Unless you kind of lose it. Exactly. And you you mentioned Quatermass. I think that's a a very good point because it really, you know, uh, in in the 40s, the sort of uh, gothic strain had come to an end and uh, had been supplanted by science fiction. And you know, there are all the sort of 50s horror sci-fi films that, you know, not everything fits into one categorization or another. A film doesn't have to be just one thing. Some films are both science fiction. You know, it's uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon comes to mind. Is that a horror film or is it a science fiction film? Well, you know, I guess it's both. Um, but the, the Frankenstein. Grand- Frankenstein, of course, is a perfect example that's totally pure science fiction in many respects, although we tend to think of it as horror. Um but it was really during the 50s with the Quatermass uh, serials in Great Britain that things started to shift back towards science fiction and more towards monsters and horror films and things like that. Uh, the Quatermass experiment came out in 53 on British television, and that really caused a sensation. And then a couple of years later, there were uh, the uh, the film adaptations, there was uh, Quatermass 2 and the Quatermass in the Pit, all in the 1950s on British TV. And then Hammer did their film versions of Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 in, in the mid-50s. That sort of opened the floodgates 
for what happened with regards to films like The Curse of Frankenstein. But right around that same time, there must have been something in the air because not only did you have The Curse of Frankenstein in production, but also in the UK you had Night of the Demon, which is one of the all-time great horror films going into production. And in Italy, Mario Bava and Ricardo Freda were making Ivan Piri. So there was this sort of shift back from science fiction into horror subject matter that was gradually happening all over the place. And a movie like Fiend Without a Face is one of those movies that sort of straddles the line between the two things. It actually came about partly because of Boris Karloff bringing a project to uh, Richard Gordon called Stranglehold, which he wanted to make as a film. And uh, they made that as The Grip of the Strangler, also known as The Haunted Strangler. And in order to have a double bill to put out with it, uh, that's how they came upon making Fiend, with, uh, Fiend Without a Face. So, you know, it's all that sort of horror, sci-fi, overlapping sort of thing going on at the same time. Uh, they came out as a double bill in, in uh, 1958. MGM released them over here in 58. You know, you have that combination of an old-style Boris Karloff gothic horror-type film with the Haunted Strangler and then a sort of slightly more modern uh, Quatermass-style science fiction horror film with Fiend Without a Face. But uh, in terms of horror content, uh, Fiend Without a Face is the more, by far the more gruesome and more horrific film. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a few words from our sponsors. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, 
You know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. All right, we're back, and we're talking about Fiend Without a Face. Now, I have to say, I was surprised that we talked before about these creatures are not necessarily manifestations of Professor Walgate's id. You know, it doesn't seem like they are doing his bidding or fulfilling his unmet needs. You know, they're not attacking people who have directly wronged him, any of those kind of things. And also that he's not doing this for some sort of ulterior motive. And the movie that came to my mind when I was watching this was another brain movie, but I was thinking of the brain that wouldn't die and thinking of the whole idea of the creature that lives behind the closet door, the one that they're keeping locked up, the failed experiment, and how our main character is, you know, he's he's a man of science, but he's a doctor, and he has that kind of, like, the, I can't remember the name of that Alec Baldwin movie where he was so full of himself, you know, I, I'm not playing God, I am God, you know? So there's that whole, like, you know, he, he thinks that he's so much better than everybody else, and he's doing these experiments so that he can gain the glory. So it's kind of a nice thing that it isn't the id but i'm really surprised that when you have these these literal brains running around that they're not like little id creatures that are taking care of business and doing the bidding of the professor so it's it's a it's interesting dichotomy that we have there yeah i mean when you talk about the id monster the thing that comes to my mind is uh, forbidden planet which was you know around uh, also the same time in the 50s and that was a a kind of a bigger budget much bigger budget as a matter of fact uh, mgm production widescreen in color with uh, name actors and so forth. But um, that was, you know, kind of an intellectual uh, attempt at a, a science fiction film, more literate in, in some respects, but that's an example of a, uh, you know, a, a more traditional approach in the sense that the, uh, the monster, the creature is going after some kind of a, a vendetta kind of an angle, as opposed to here, it's just, you know, like I said before, it's uh, the obvious play on words, but these creatures just have a mind of their own. 
and they just do what they do instinctively. And uh, it it also reminds me of the fact that really there is this sort of subgenre of brain oriented horror and science fiction films, which uh, goes, I guess, arguably back to uh, Donovan's Brain, the Kurt Siodmak book from 1942, uh, numerous film versions of that and various other films of that type. You know, you don't tend to think of it that there's a lot of, you know, sort of uh, brain-oriented horror films and science fiction films, and yet there are. Although, you know, it's funny, when I was thinking about this film, the first movie that came to my mind was a movie that actually has almost nothing in common with it, which is The Brain from Planet Aros, Eros, however one says that, which I love because it's really, really entertaining, but has nothing to do with all of these things we've been talking about in the plane, in the brain from Planet Aros. I mean, these brains are, they're aliens of some kind. And they've just come to, where is it, Arizona, New Mexico, somewhere to invade the Earth and, and do evil. But uh, I love them just because they're giant balloon-floating brains, and they're fabulous. I guess it comes down to sort of fascination with our bodies and the idea that somehow that aspects of our of our anatomy can somehow betray us and, and even kill us. And in a lot of ways, of course, this all goes back to Frankenstein, not to the novel per se, but to the movie versions in which the, the thing that sinks Dr. Frankenstein's experiment is the wrong brain. So right. rather than having the intelligent brain, he's got the brain of an insane person or the brain of some other awful thing. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Abby normal. I guess it, it all goes into that brain-body notion where people have been asking for centuries whether your mind is embedded in your brain or whether your mind is actually separate from the physical ball of jelly that is your brain. So it, there's a very long conversation going on there that ultimately has to do with the question of whether, what you are whether your mind is uh, an incorporeal thing or whether it's that actual thing that's contained within your skull. I am really glad that this episode finally did prompt me to watch The Brain from Planet Eros because that was, surprisingly, again, you know, that was another movie that I saw in that same montage from uh, It Came From Hollywood Fantastic movie. I was really surprised again at just how much I liked that and how well put together that was. And I would also recommend that people check that movie out because that was a real hoot, as they say. I love that movie. I love that brain with its glowing eyes. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And so malevolent. (laughs) I agree. That's, that's a fun movie. That's, uh, uh, one of the, uh, sort of, irresistible, schlocky uh, John Agar science fiction horror films of the 50s into the 60s that he did. Uh, you know, I, w- one wouldn't necessarily argue that they're great art, but they are great entertainment. Yeah, I mean, they could have, like, you know, focused a little bit better when it's the effect of him with those, like, um, uh, um, I can't remember the name from uh, of the character in Star Trek, but I think they're, like, the same exact contact lenses, like, you know, that, that effect of him getting his power and taking those planes out of the sky and everything. Yeah, but 
I really liked uh, the whole idea of the, the two brains and, you know, again, we're kind of going back into more Freudian territory in that as far as like entering into the cave and finding the brain creature down there that takes over this guy. And, you know, that's kind of a nice thing as well. And again, I really thought that I had a very interesting soundtrack, some good acting, and that they ended up using like the dog as the carrier of the second brain from the planet, the cop brain. You know, again, it, it reminded me of a movie that we've also talked about in this podcast before. It reminded me a lot of The Hidden, and it reminded me of like the Kyle McLaughlin character. Like, you know, what if that brain, that, that slug creature ended up going into a dog for a while, which it did in the movie, and was our hero because that was, uh, you know, th- that, that was a means of escape for our villain in The Hidden, but in this one, it's a means for our hero to get close to the bad brain to the to the evil creature that's living inside of John Agar so that was kind of a nice thing that to do oh, it's really great although all of this is just taking me back to my absolute favorite third season Star Trek episode turnabout intruder I'm surprised you didn't go with they saved Spock's brain oh yeah that too alright we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show A spectacular one-of-a-kind, a seductive mystery, a Rorschach test for the adventurous eye. A remarkable achievement which draws together the stories of epic literature, the boundaries of poetry and experimental film, and breaks all molds, furnishing celluloid with new possibilities. Wordlessly recalls the spirit of Samuel Beckett's darkest parables. These visions of suffering give way to equally impassioned images of rebirth. No exit. Nobody will get through begotten without being marked. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Begotten. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Maitland and Troy. Troy, what have you been working on lately, sir? Well, I've been working on a number of different uh, commentaries. Uh, not at liberty to say which one's just dead, and so I'm told I'm allowed to do that. Uh, but uh, book-wise, uh, this year I've had uh, my book on Paul Nashi came out, uh, Human Beasts, the films of Paul Nashi. I'm very pleased with how that turned out, and uh, that came out in June of this year. Next year, uh, early uh, part of next year, the third and final volume of my book about Italian Jallo films, So Deadly So Perverse, should be coming out. And I'm also going to be 
working on a, a project that, that uh, Maitland and I both ha- have in common with regards to a mutual interest, and that's Dario Argento. Uh, so I'll be doing a book uh, devoted to Argento and his films uh, sometime next year. I'll be writing it, but uh, when it'll be out, probably not next year, maybe the year after, but you know, I've, I've definitely got a lot of irons in the fire. And Maitland, for folks who may not have heard you on last week's Suspiri episode, what have you been working on? Well, I've been doing sundry things, um, but the primary thing I've been working on is still republishing vintage gay adult novels of the 70s. And the books that I really would like to mention now are the two Naked Launch books, which are a pair of 17th century pirate novels. They are incredibly entertaining, incredibly sexy, and a tremendous amount of fun. And they have been republished by Riverdale Avenue Books. You can visit their website and find out all about them, or you can, of course, see me on Facebook, and I speak about them there. So that's really most of what I've I've been doing these days. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating helps the projection booth, and rampant brains take over the world. Razor sharp precision, mouth to mouth.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.